Hi folks, it's Kean here. You find me on an early summer's morning and it's hot. We're in the midst of an uncharacteristic heat wave over 30 degrees. Um, I am checking my moth trap, which I have set outside the cabin. Um, nothing too exciting, I suppose. There's a, a scalloped oak moth and a small magpie moth and a few grey footmen as well. Nothing too exciting, certainly nothing as bizarre as the creatures we're going to be talking about in this episode as we're returning to the theme of cryptozoology. So yes, I'm Kean. This is White Atlantic Weird, the Irish 14 show that's critical but not cynical. As always, folks, you can get in touch over on Twitter, where I'm at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. Since it's early in the morning, my drink this episode is not a beer at all, but uh, just a very strong coffee. I'm going to keep looking through this trap. Hopefully we've got some stuff that's uh, a little bit more interesting. And uh, while you're waiting for the episode to get started, you can consider supporting the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. My guest on this episode uh, runs a YouTube channel known as Truth is Scarier Than Fiction and uh, it kind of attracted my attention for covering a much, much broader range of cryptids than you usually do come across in media. So hopefully you enjoy this interview. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. My name is Truth is Scarier Than Fiction or Truth, and I run a YouTube channel by the same name where I talk about a variety of mysterious topics like mysteries and most especially right now, cryptozoology or the study of hidden animals. Yeah, so uh, thanks for coming on the show, uh, Truth. I'll, I'll call you that. I like that for short. Um, I yes. came across the channel. I, I obviously get a lot of things of this sort popping up on my on my YouTube, and I like. I guess I like the fact that you're going into this stuff in more detail than you generally see. You know, I'm always attracted to anyone who's going beyond the uh, s- surface level stuff. Is that something you feel that you deliberately try for on on your videos? Yes, it is. I remember. Another YouTuber, barely sociable. I remember one of his tweets, I believe, he had some advice about doing something that nobody else is doing. And that's kind of what I try to live my uh, my YouTube videos with, is either doing something that nobody else is doing or doing some, or doing a video in a way that nobody else is doing. Because when I started my uh, Cryptid Iceberg series, which is where uh, I discuss most of the cryptids, there were a couple other cryptid icebergs out there floating on the web. And then there were a couple of YouTube videos of people doing the same thing. So I looked at them uh, briefly and I said, okay, I can do this, but I can go into more depth, like you said, than anybody else. So I you know, started planning it out and I, uh, so for over a year now, I've been uh, adding to it slowly as I uh, get further down the iceberg. Yeah, it, it's quite a work. And I, I do recommend listeners to check out the the Cryptid Iceberg videos. I think people who listen to the show will, will be interested in the amount of depth you've gone into and specifically the amount of creatures that I haven't seen, you know, people spoke spoke about pretty much anywhere else. For people who are un, uninitiated, how would you describe, where does this concept of icebergs come from? And is, is, this, is this a thing that um, exists across YouTube, you know, on a variety of different topics? Yeah, so icebergs you know by definition you have the little bit of the iceberg that sticks out above the water and then the most most of the uh, iceberg is hidden kind of below the waters so the concept of the iceberg is that it takes a topic and like you said it can be pretty much any topic you want uh there's a lot of different youtube videos on different icebergs but you have the surface level stuff at the top the stuff you cover first And then as you go down and as you get farther into the videos, you start covering more obscure, more strange, more bizarre uh, topics, or in my case, cryptids. So as an example, the top of the iceberg would be filled with cryptids like Bigfoot, Yeti, Loch Ness Monster. And then as you go down, you get into uh, more lesser known cryptids. 
Yeah, and that, that's the stuff that kind of caught my eye. There's, and maybe we'll get into some specifics in a little bit, but obviously I think most people with even a surface level interest are aware of some of the the big name cryptid superstars. And it, it's always fun to come across more and to see that the field has more to it. And, in, you know, in my case, because I, I my, my kind of approach often is coming from, I suppose, a sociological or maybe a cultural one as to, you know, what was going on in the culture when people were, were telling these stories or were seeing these things. And um, it's interesting to me how some of them have kind of br- broken through into the mainstream and then others remain less known. Maybe we'll get into details of that shortly. But do you know, do you know, like this iceberg um, thing on YouTube, is is this old? Or do you know who started doing it first? Or what kind of fandom or anything it was associated with first? Uh, personally, the first time I started seeing icebergs was on the paranormal board of 4chan or 4 channel now. Uh, that was when around 2017. I'm sure they were there before, but I started seeing them on topics like conspiracy theories, which, you know, conspiracy theories and cryptids kind of go hand to hand in terms of the mysterious, the hidden, you know, uh, how in depth some of them can go. And then about a year or two ago, I would say icebergs really started taking off on YouTube. Actually, I was inactive on YouTube for a long time until I saw another YouTuber by the name of Wendigoon who was doing his own icebergs on uh, conspiracy theories and disturbing videos. And that's what really inspired me to get into uh, making iceberg videos. Cool. Now, I know from your videos that um, you've spoken previously about some of the books that were very um, influential on you and and getting into this topic. So I'm interested to hear what, what, what those were and kind of what got you started on being interested in cryptozoology. Yeah, so I was about... When I was a very young kid, maybe like five or six, I knew about Chupacabra, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, but I didn't really have a name for it. I didn't know of a name for it. So I called it in my head Scooby-Dooology, as in the cartoon character (laughs) Scooby-Doo when they're, you know, hunting after, usually they're fake, but uh, monsters. And uh, I believe I was like seven or eight, and I got a book from my family titled Tales of the Cryptids, Mysterious Creatures That May or May Not Exist by Hulls, Spears, and Young, and it had a foreword from Lauren Coleman. Uh, It was a very good, I definitely recommend it, especially for any uh, younger people who might be interested. It put, first of all, it put a name to them. I didn't know what a cryptid was beforehand. And uh, finding out that there is this whole, you know, science uh, subculture behind, you know, hunting for Bigfoot. That was very interesting. And secondly, the way it uh, cryptids are presented in the book, I thought was very cool as well. They gave every cryptid a one through five rating system based on how likely they were to exist. Mm. And they also went through and covered uh, hoaxes and cryptids that were confirmed to exist which I think was a nice touch. Hmm. After that, uh, maybe not specific books. This was definitely the most, uh, uh, the biggest book in my life for cryptozoology. But I also remember reading Lauren Coleman a lot and Linda Godfrey. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, Both American authors and both had a lot of, uh, they cover a lot of cryptids a little bit more on the paranormal side. Uh, in Linda Godfrey's cases, but they were definitely two of the biggest, or two of the uh, authors I read the most in terms of cryptozoology. I'm I'm looking at the cover of Tales of the Cryptids here. It has that kind of nice, um, like Victorian circus or, you know, even yep. Victorian freak show kind of uh, theme going on on the cover. Yes, it I... does. Fantastic <laughs> illustrations, by the way. Yeah, very interesting. It's always it's you usually when you ask somebody there was if, if they're of kind of a certain age, there was a book, you know, that kind of got them going. And and the, this was your own Tales of the Cryptids. OK, yes. um, I want to get a little we might get a tiny little bit contentious here. And um, there's a bit of talk online at the moment about like, how do we define what a cryptid is? And there's definitely a bit of creep going on where. People like to stretch the term to cover a wider range of things. Maybe then it was originally intended to. Um, to convey, I wonder if you have a personal 
take on this or do you have a personal um, definition that you use in your work before you will kind of include something? Yeah, so personally, when it comes to the cryptid iceberg, there's kind of a, for maybe those unaware, there's kind of a debate as to whether or not things like aliens or creatures that may have maybe aliens and then paranormal animals count as cryptids. Personally, I do count both as them in my cryptid iceberg. However, I don't I don't want to say I don't take them seriously, but personally, they are some of the cryptids I kind of give the least attention to just because of uh, lack of evidence, in my opinion. I would say, well, to me, the three cryptids that should get the most attention, in my opinion, are the unknown animals, which are any animals that aren't recognized by scientists, out-of-place animals, which are an existing group of animals that are sighted in a new area, and then extinct animals that may still be alive, like the thylacine or the ivory-billed woodpecker. In my opinion, those are kind of the three categories that most uh, that uh, cryptozoology should really focus on. And yeah, and I do think that even if some people have very strict categorizations for what should count. Um, however, I think the reality is that people who study these things tend to kind of inevitably have an interest in all three of those. So even if, you know, by anyone's classification, one of those uh, groups doesn't count, like you'll be hard pressed to find a researcher who's into one and not into the others, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even... You know, even though I don't really count kind of uh, count the more paranormal and alien side too, I do still, you know, appreciate reading about them. I think they have a place in uh, folklore, especially. And then, like you said, there is some debate about even the three categories I listed, especially uh, surviving extinct animals, because a lot of people tend to view them as not cryptids since they were acknowledged as existing but you know that's up to you yeah. i talk with a lot of people a lot of people are very uh, in my audience are very pro paranormal animals a lot of people are you know very strict stick to the science people and as long i mean as long as you're you know nice about it when it comes to debating then yeah i'll have a problem with it yeah, and I, I'm constantly surprised by um, folks who whose work um, maybe seems like they take a flesh and blood approach, and then as you dig more deeper into it, or as indeed, like as as you meet people who know other people, you know, and who know people in the field, and I, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself deeply embedded or anything, but you know, I, I have some 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 friends who are writers in the field, and you know, they'll let me know about something they heard about somebody, and. Not everybody says what they believe out loud and not everybody, um, you know, privately holds uh, the same position that they do publicly. And it's, it's always interesting to, to come across people who are a little more willing to, to go for the supernatural stuff than they might say on record. Don't know if you've come across any of that. Yeah, I would say. I guess personally, I kind of, like I said before, I kind of stick to the more flesh and blood approach. But I was raised with, uh, it might be different uh, overseas, but in America, uh, especially in the 2000, 2010s, we had Monster Quest, which was uh, huge in terms of cryptozoology. And that focused a lot on those uh, more paranormal animals like Mothman, uh, Dogman, Jersey Devil, stuff like that. So at least for me, even if I don't quite believe it, I'm still interested in it. And I'll still read through the examples, even if, you know, I don't, I don't uh, take them as seriously as other stuff. Yeah, same. And I think as, as a canon or as a, a fandom, if you want to call it that, it would be kind of unrealistic to rule out, rule out those, those examples, you know, even though they're, they're not at all what the, you know, the cryptozoologists of the 50s would have accepted or they wouldn't have seen that as part of their field, you know, Huvelmans or, or Sanderson, um, even though they both believed in some fairly out there stuff. But it was at least within yes. a putative zoological framework most of the time. Right. I would. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, like you said, you brought up some of those examples. Uh, 
I would just say that not everything that's been lumped into the paranormal section would be necessarily paranormal. And then not everything that uh, is lumped into the flesh and blood section would necessarily be realistic. Like, I think I was just discussing with some other people uh, theories about 300 foot long giant squids, which uh, personally, I think is a bit (laughs) quite a bit out there. Yeah. And I would say, you know, in terms of realistically existing would be about on the same level as Owl Man or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess sometimes we, we treat them as if, oh, just because they're not like a spirit that it's more sensible. And, you know, sometimes that's not the case. That's interesting. Right. Do let me think now. So I'm here's what I'm interested in. So your work and, and I recommend to listeners that they check out some of these videos because it covers a much wider range, as I've said, than your, the kind of standard heavy hitters. Um, and there's hundreds of much lesser known examples of people citing unusual animals around the world. Um, do you have any theories as to like, why do some break through and become these kind of icons while so many of them never get past these obscure books or these obscure newspaper reports. They don't turn into a, a celebrity. They don't turn into um, a, a kind of an icon. Yeah, I would definitely, that is a good question. I would definitely say that I believe part of it comes down to, I don't want to say design because that implies that they're uh, created like man-made, but some things are just uh, more iconic, more out there that really grab the reader. For example, just uh, uh, for two examples, Mothman, personally, I think that Mothman is very cool design. Mothman's one of the more popular cryptids. Uh, you see, I've even seen people in public walking around with Mothman pins, Mothman shirts, stuff like that. I definitely think, you know, the concept of a giant flying moth person is pretty cool, whereas... Uh, Another example, the tailed slow loris, which if you don't know, was a species of loris allegedly found in India with a major distinction uh, from known loris species being that it had a large tail. It's just a loris with a tail. It doesn't really quite grab at you. It doesn't really come out at you. So I think that the cool factor definitely plays a part in it. Yeah, and I suppose like some of these things might only be of interest if you're already a kind of a zoology person you know who's why would someone care about a, a, a different species of loris if you're not already interested in, in loris lori i don't know what the plural is <laughs> loris is i say loris is but <laughs> yeah and I, I, another part comes down to it if you want to take the more skeptical approach uh it just depends how much uh how many people in terms of uh phenomenon how many people go along with it because if you know mothman was only ever cited by one person i think it would be a lot more obscure than it is now but you know in the wake of that first sighting you had a media frenzy you had multiple other people reporting their own sightings and then you had that uh i think it was a book called mothman prophecies and that really turned things up to 11 in terms of how much attention it got and then just the uh, amount of reports, the story behind it, I think it was just so compelling that it kind of became more famous than other cryptids. Yeah, I think it, it definitely helps to have a, a professional writer in town at the time who was able to yes. craft it into a narrative which is memorable. And, and you know, I mean, he, John Keel was a very interesting guy, but he was, you know, part of his job was being a self-promoter and getting his ideas out there. That's that's part of what he did. And um, yeah, that de- definitely helps to have someone there who's a pro- media professional, put a bit of glass on things. <laughs> yes, because Mothman, even, even compared to other, uh, I guess, spree cryptids that are, you know, they pop up for a couple uh, weeks or years and then they kind of disappear again. Mothman definitely stands above the other ones in terms of uh, how popular and recognizable it is. I have a, a potential idea on this, which is that, like, I, th- I think certain cryptids fulfill some kind of desire or niche in in, in our minds, and whether whether or not you think they're real, I think like Bigfoot, like the, the figure of the the wild man who's partly human and partly of the wild, 
is undoubtedly like whether you believe or not it's undoubtedly it's worldwide it seems to exist in almost every culture and it it must mean something deep to us it must fulfill some some belief and it so therefore it has you know it has a meaning beyond just what it is it has a, it has a meaning as an icon and then i think some of these more obscure ones which, which i'm fascinated by but that haven't broken out into the into the big time I think a lot of it comes from a lot of the you can you can agree or disagree on this. I'm interested to find out because I have a question about sources next. But a lot of the lesser known ones come to me seem to be coming from a very specific time in a very specific genre of writing, like this kind of travel writing from the turn of the 20th century, the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s. And a lot of it is written by hunters and travelers in and big game hunters in the tropics. And I think that part of their culture and part of that writing was telling tall tales. You know, any hunter is expected to tell tall tales. And most of these books were fairly ordinary for most of their runtime, but then they'd have one or two tall tales about seeing uh, an unusual creature or a monster or a dinosaur or whatnot. And I, I wonder myself if some of these stories aren't very useful outside of that specific context. And so that genre is is old-fashioned now. It's out of style. And so these creatures don't have any, whether or not they, they exist, you know, the way they're described, they don't have necessarily a function for us the way the way Sasquatch does. I don't know if, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, well, in terms of, you know, like you said before, there are definitely Sasquatch-esque uh, creatures reported from around the world. I think even so far in my iceberg, I've covered like maybe two dozen different, uh, you know, hairy bipedal six, seven foot or two meter tall uh, ape men from across the world. So I definitely think that, you know, those are fairly iconic, sort of the wild man, like you said. And I also agree that uh, you mentioned uh, turn of the 20th century hunters coming across different animals uh, that may or may not exist, and then writing about them and embellishing the details a bit, which I do agree with. But uh, I do think that you're correct there. I think just for a comparison, I remember uh, reading about Marco Polo, who, if you don't know, was a famous explorer centuries ago. But he would travel to the other side of the world and he'd come back with reports of headless men or men whose heads were uh, in their chests and stuff like that. And I do think in terms of the cultural need for something, just the uh, idea that there are unknown creatures or entities out there is something that culturally we need as humans, or I guess don't need as humans but kind of desire as humans. Hmm. And I, I think for me personally, I have a huge interest in the colonial period just as a history buff. And I think I think that that was a period in time when, you know, for Europeans at least, um, you know, going to these tropical countries seemed like an opportunity to discover new things, places, peoples, animals. And I think some of that that um, desire from that pe- period kind of holds holds through and you know reading Hubelman's and stuff it's it's kind of shot through with language from that era you know he references the lost world he references you know the great days of zoology are not done there's this kind of desire for the old-fashioned you know adventure that um to me at least is, is tied to that period of time the 19th century early 20th century yeah I agree you got that was really one of the more iconic times for uh exploration you had uh I believe it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who wrote about the lost world of dinosaurs, uh, stuff like that. And uh, that is actually one of the issues I think you run into with cryptozoology, at least, you know, as myself, I speak English and I can read and transcribe a little bit of Spanish and French with help from my friends. But just the fact that most of the sources and most of the stuff we read is from uh as cryptozoologists is from you know english travelers uh who uh, you know traveled to say india for a few years spotted something wrote it down recorded it and then left but uh you know we don't really have that perspective from the people that were living there if that makes sense Mm. yeah because yeah personally i would like to uh 
And one of the th- one of the things, one of my goals is to talk to more people from around the world and kind of get a sense of their local uh, opinions on cryptozoology and especially on the cryptids that we know of from that era, like you said. And that is definitely one of the uh, more interesting things to me is kind of going back decades later and uh, comparing these early reports by explorers to what is uh, commonly believed there now. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on something important there, I think, because um, like there, there are parts of the world where the ideas of the, the Westerners who came there with this sort of this interpretation, if you like, the, the you know, the rationalist scientific, we are going to explain your mythology to you. And, you know, these are real physical things. And then sometimes you get the leftovers where the people who live in these places, and I suppose I'm thinking of what happened in the Congo after, you know, Gibbons and um, all those guys went over and, you know, taught the locals that people will come and spend a bit of money if you if you tell them about dinosaurs. Right, um, right. And, and now they they that story does exist there, but maybe it's because people, you know, people from Europe came there asking about it. It's, it's very difficult to tell now, and if, especially if you don't speak languages. Right. That is uh, one of the uh, great, one of the nicer things is that I was actually able to talk to people from all across the world. And, uh, you know, I'm still kind of small on YouTube. I don't have that great of a reach, but I have been able to reach out to people from Japan, South America, and sort of uh, compare notes on what they now believe on cryptids. Uh, to those early European reports, and especially, you know, like you said, how uh, travelers there sort of started out their own mythology about uh, dinosaurs in the Congo. You know, I like to ask people, you know, does this have uh, roots in your folklore or in your stories or reports going back prior to, you know, the initial English reports on the creatures, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. I I do the same thing. I, I'm always desperately trying to find anything that predates the you know the the official cryptozoological take on something. Uh, I must ask, do you have any do you have any sh- stories you'd like to share about some of these international um, uh, conversations you've had? So it sounds like a good topic. Yeah, well, one main example is a lot of the times, especially in North and South America, you read about a cryptid, and what's obvious, what's usually accompanied is. Uh, the origins of this cryptid have roots in native folklore about, you know, I guess the most famous example is Bigfoot, because a lot of cryptozoologists like to draw distinctions between Native American stories and Bigfoot. Uh, I talked to a friend from Argentina, and uh, one of the cryptids there is El Nacto. I believe I don't know how to pronounce it anymore. It's been quite a few months. But I remember specifically reading that they claim that El Nahulito, the stories of the creature, it's a late cryptid, uh, were around for decades beforehand, before the initial English report. So it was nice being able to talk to him. And he did actually confirm that the cryptid had been talked about for many years, uh, even predating the initial cryptozoological reports on it. Yeah, that's cool. That's interesting. And um, who did you, or what did you speak to uh, about with uh, some Japanese folks? That sounds interesting. Uh, I'm not, uh, it was on one of the discords I'm in, but he was able, he was more of a case of, sort of sharing the local uh, uh, cryptozoological folklore from Japan. Uh, I actually talked to another fellow from Poland about this too, but there are, earlier you said about how some cryptids sort of uh, never take hold and sort of fade away. I found out about some cases of cryptids that sort of stayed in the local, uh, maybe folklore the local cryptozoological uh, canon. And I discussed with them uh, some cryptids that had no discussion in the uh, sort of Western English uh, cryptozoological discussion forums or wikis, which was really nice to see because it was uh, another one of my goals is to be able to share mysteries from different languages 
and translate them into other languages so more people can understand them. Yeah, that's extremely oh. cool. And that kind of preempts yeah. my next question about sources, because it's it's fantastic. It's wonderful that you are talking to people from around the world, and that's that's a, one way of getting information. I wonder, uh, do you do you have any way of vetting like sources when you're deciding what will count and what will go into the videos? And um, do you are you strict or are you happy to include anything that has a good story? Or how do you like to play it? I'll try. Usually, I'll try to sort of debunk it for me. To put something on the cryptozoological iceberg, it has to have a. And I, I will try to disprove if that makes sense. Uh, for like, if uh, if I'm looking at a cryptid, and I look through the reports of it, and I find out that oh, for example, I believe the Thetis Lake monster, which has been cited a couple of times, but I look closer into it. Uh, if you don't know, the Thetis Lake monster was allegedly a sort of a gillfish-like creature that was in the United States back in the 1950s. So when I was vetting as to whether or not to put it on the iceberg, I looked at the initial sighting and I found out, oh, uh, you know, five or six years after the initial sighting, turns out that the boys had faked the entire thing and were inspired by a local showing of creature from the black lagoon oh, oh. <laughs> so to me if if i can find uh, a good explanation as to why it's not encrypted or why the setting is fake i won't put it on the iceberg otherwise i tend to even for the more out there ones i'll put them on the iceberg but then i'll use most of my other focus on cryptozoology on cryptids that i think are more uh trustworthy or more plausible so even it just because i put something on the iceberg doesn't exactly mean that i have like i believe in it personally it's just that i personally can't disprove that it exists yeah it means the the door is still open the case isn't closed there there may be still some mystery there right even if it's a 99.9 percent <laughs> chance you know uh yeah some of them, I can't give any examples off the top of my head, but there are some pretty out there ones. As yeah. long as I can uh, reasonably tell that the first witness wasn't telling uh, an open lie or it wasn't a victim of a hoax or something, I'll put it on the iceberg. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, you're you're including so you're dealing with such large masses of material. You've got to have some rules, right, as to what goes in and what goes out. So. Yeah, you have to stick to your own yes. uh, stick to your own rules sometimes. Um, I think we'll. I'm re so my favorite thing about the videos, as I said, is basically coming across new stories and new animals that I, I hadn't heard about. So I wonder, would you have a few of your favorite, let's say, obscure cryptids, and would you tell us a little bit about the the stories behind them? Sure, I'll do uh, <clears throat> top three. So. For me, when I started off the iceberg, I listed off maybe 80 or so that I knew off the top of my head. And these are ones that I'd read about for years, I'd seen in TV shows, stuff like that. So actually doing research for the iceberg was really nice because I came across a lot of lesser known stories, like you said. I would say one of my favorites, I talked about it before, is the story of the tailed slow loris. Essentially, in the 1890s, I believe, an uh, English geologist was along with some Indian zoologists in the eastern portion of the country, and they had captured a tailed slow loris. Now, lorises don't have tails. Uh, all known uh, species of loris don't have any tails. But the specimens they caught had long, bushy ones, which is fairly significant. Now they caught, they captured them, they put them in a box and they took photographs of them. But lorises are also known for being fairly uh, sloth-like in behavior, very slow and lethargic. So they sort of just put them in a box and then went to sleep. Well, the next day, turns out the, you know, the slow loris was uh, faster than they thought and they escaped and they have not been sighted since, as far as I know. Nice. Which uh, yeah. I I like as a story. I definitely think since you know a tailed slow loris is 
very plausible in my opinion. It's a good uh, story to get people into more of that plausible side of cryptozoology. Yeah, I think the longer and, I read it, the the let you know, and I get past the big flashy dramatic things. The more interesting I find these, you know, it's it's just an unknown animal. It, it's perfectly plausible. Yeah, I find those more interesting. Definitely, second one would be the bathysphere creatures, uh, bathysphere fish, as they're sometimes called, which essentially uh, William Beebe, who was a very famous biologist, uh, zoologist, conservationist. He did a series of experiments where he went down in the very early submersible in the 1930s. And he would go into some of the deepest parts of the ocean that humanity had ever been in. So far beyond, you know, the type of uh, animals they were encountering would be extremely rare to show up on the surface. Almost, you know, you would almost never see them. And he spotted five separate species of new fish. And in the... 90 since year or the 90 plus years since these first sightings these fish have never been sighted again however all of them were fairly plausible again in terms of appearance and description there was an angler fish that had three of the bioluminescent lures uh there was a small gar that was rainbowed colored creatures like that where they're plausible enough that he doesn't really have a reason to fake them and there's not really a I wouldn't say room to doubt them, but they're very they're very believable cryptids too, which I thought was pretty fascinating, especially since the uh, the uh, conditions they were first sighted in are so rare. You know, most people don't go down nearly to that uh, depth they were at. They were, I think, three thousand feet below the surface, or about over a thousand meters. So. You know, it kind of fulfills two uh, major questions I have when it comes to cryptids. One, they're plausible biologically. And then two, they were cited in conditions where it makes sense that they haven't been discovered yet by scientists. Okay. Do you have another another obscure cryptid you'd like to tell us about? This one's actually becoming less obscure. Uh, I personally have been making video. I made a video featuring it. And I've been trying to uh, share the story of it around. But the Deep Star 4000 fish, I've also been heard, or I've also heard it been referred to as the Imperial Coelacanth. Essentially, the story is in back in the 1960s, the Deep Star 4000, which was another submersible, went 4,000 feet deep in the ocean. And on the seafloor, one of the uh, pilots of the vessel spotted what he thought at first was a sort of mound of mud or shadow, a large shadow. So he's a bit confused about it. And then he noticed that the large shadow had an eye to it. Suddenly, the large, the large fish started moving around, and he noticed that it was a massive scale, uh, yeah, scaled fish, about 30 to 40 feet long, with a... You know, the name uh, Imperial Coelacanth comes from the tail of the creature, which he said resembled a coelacanth. And the creature passed by him in about 10 seconds and then was never sighted again. And, you know, a 30 to 40 foot long fish is pretty. Uh, That's pretty out there, though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like a it's not like a different species of frog that, you know, they discover every week in the rainforest. It's, <laughs> you know, pretty significant. Yeah. But at the same time, the man who cited it was a undersea photographer, and his uh, fellow who was with him was also a uh, uh, had experience in ocean biology. So I think you know those type of sightings are fairly significant and uh, plausible. Hmm. Is that your top three? So far, those <laughs> are the ones I yeah, those are the ones I've uh, covered so far in the iceberg. There are definitely a lot more that I have yet to get to, but uh, those are some of my favorites so far. I think I've made a, they each have their own video too, because I like them so much and I wanted to go into more depth. I want to ask, when, you, when you're when you reading this stuff and when you compare it to the books you had earlier in, in life, do you think that um, the field has changed or the community has changed? Are people looking for different things from it than they were decades ago? I would, I would say yes. Uh, 
one of the big differences is now I have access to the internet, which I didn't really have uh, before. So I can, you know, talk to people around the world. And one big thing I noticed is that people overseas tend to focus, I'm in the United States, but people in Japan, Argentina, uh, Europe tend to focus on more the flesh and blood cryptids. While in the United States, there's a lot of focus on the aliens like the Flatwoods Monster and then the paranormal cryptids like Mothman, which I definitely think was uh, one of the biggest, most significant things I've noticed so far. Another thing I've noticed, uh, I've seen other people talking about it on Twitter, was that there's a lot of this term cryptid has sort of expanded uh, greatly to the point where if you search cryptid now on Twitter, you'll see a bunch of people just listing themselves as cryptids. They'll put it in like their handles, stuff like that. (laughs) And uh, I've done that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) At least I, at least I read about them though. (laughs) Yeah. And then sort of the, uh, the field of things that are considered cryptids, you'll have stuff like injured cold, yeah. Uh, uh, Spring Hill Jack be considered cryptids. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, you know, paranormal stuff, werewolves, stuff like that, which I definitely think is another uh, change that's been going on recently. Yeah. As odd as he was, I, I don't think Hubelmans would have gone for that. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And um, do you have a favorite? I would say of the big three, I like the thylet or I like the ivory billed woodpecker. That yeah. was one of the, again, I'm in the United States and reading about that was fairly interesting to me. Uh, knowing that, you know, there was, this animal was confirmed to exist and it's now declared extinct What there have been, you know, sightings here and there of it in the decades since it was declared extinct. And then I'm, I would say probably the uh, bathysphere fish. I really like that setting. I think it's very compelling. And I like the the deep sea nature to it. I think that's always cool to read about. There were cases quite recently, weren't there, of um, sightings of the ivory bill and like, you know, hundreds of people turned up at some little town because the story was going around that they had been seen. Am I, is that correct? Yeah, I believe it was going around. I think it was actually sort of controversial because there was a... Uh, there is debate going around as to, you know, we have these thousand dollar rewards for the ivory built woodpecker, but, you know, species that we do have now that aren't extinct for sure, uh, don't get really that amount of attention. But yes, yeah. there are uh, more recent reports of the ivory built woodpecker. Yeah, that, that is that is sad. I and mean, it can be it can be fairly upsetting if you think about it. And there are there are people in conservation who do get you know fairly righteously annoyed about about that sort of thing i wonder if anyone has ever um and you know reported seeing great auks you know they were on both sides of the atlantic they lived here and they lived on the east coast of north america and uh, they they were killed off i think in the 1870s and i, I just i don't know if that's one that's ever been reported when it, when, when it comes to people debating whether or not extinct animals that may or may not still be around are cryptids one of the things is uh, sort of the time period or the time that's passed since they were declared extinct. Because, you know, like you mentioned that there are, you know, there there's a given extinction date for the great auk at like uh, 15, 1853. But then there's various claims, you know, afterwards of, you know, people who happen to spot, you know, what may or may not be a great auk and unconfirmed sightings. So one of the big debates is how long do you wait until after a cryptid or after an animal's been declared extinct for settings of it to be a cryptid? You know, is it yeah. the next day? Is it 10 years, 40 years? <laughs> That's really interesting, especially in cases where, like in a lot of these cases, like people don't know that an animal has gone extinct for decades, usually, because especially back in the day, you know, there's no announcement. Oh, the last great auk has died. You know, I mean, people presumed that pilot scenes were still alive up until the 60s. 
and you know they weren't there was no necessary there wasn't necessarily an understanding that they were gone so if you saw something that you thought was a thylacine in the 50s or the 60s you know you might think oh that's pretty rare they're pretty rare but it wouldn't strike you as a cryptozoological thing would it no and i i think you mentioned <laughs> i forget who it is but uh Hovelmans maybe, but mm. one of the uh, sort of pioneers of cryptozoology was one of the people who were like, you know, these recently extinct animals should not be considered cryptids. You know, there should be a distinction between the two. But at the same time, you know, I, I think personally, uh, even if you're one of the people who don't think that uh, recently extinct animals should be cryptids, there has to be at least some point after the extinction date where they are considered cryptids, especially when you have, you know, so many people theorizing that Bigfoot is a surviving Gigantopithecus. You know, if, mm. you know, uh, unlikely as it is, if tomorrow they found Bigfoot and it was revealed to be a surviving uh, Gigantopithecus uh, for, you know, that's been extinct for tens of thousands of years, maybe even more, I forget, but, uh, I think that would still be a cryptid, in my opinion. Well, I'll say the Wikipedia page on um, Lazarus taxons, a pretty interesting reading that, you know, animals which were thought extinct and were found again alive. And, you know, most of them are not large charismatic things, but there's some pretty interesting, some pretty great stories there. Worth a look. Yeah, that's uh, Lazarus taxon. One of the most famous examples, I believe, is the coelacanth, which is often held up as the... Uh, you know, the smoking gun of cryptozoology where, okay, if they thought the coelacanth was extinct, you know, what else that we think is extinct could still be out there, which, you know, there's a lot of debate about that, but uh, it is very interesting. I encourage people to look more into the fossilization process if they're interested. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the channel or, uh, you know, why, why, why should people go and take a look and uh, what do you think they should know about it? Yeah, uh, I focus more on cryptids that you don't see talked about a lot. I I will, I do like to cover as much as I can personally. I will try and go into, well, for example, I have a Google spreadsheet, which it's more, it's kind of like a uh, Excel, a Microsoft Excel sheet. And I have currently over 800 different cryptids that I plan to cover for the series. And I'm still adding that every week. So if you want to see the most in-depth, the most encompassed uh, series on cryptozoology, you're going to find it on my channel. That's it, folks. Yeah, there's, there's stuff there you're not going to hear about pretty much anywhere else. And that's what I enjoy about it. Excellent. Uh, where can people find you online, uh, socials and, and the YouTube channel and stuff like that? YouTube channel, Truth is Scarier Than Fiction. A bit of play on the uh, term, Truth is Stranger Than Fiction. That's where you'll find me. Uh, YouTube slash C slash Truth is Scarier Than Fiction. All one word. I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash Truth Scarier. And then uh, from those two sites, I'm on a couple other websites, but I'll have links to them. Uh, in my YouTube page as well, as so you can find me on Instagram or Patreon there. And I'll put all that stuff in the notes. Truth, thank you very much for speaking with us. That was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode, folks. I'm still hard at work here at the Moth Trap outside the cabin. and uh, Not a whole lot more to report, actually. Uh, just a lot more grey footmen and nothing even remotely mysterious being tempted into my bright light moth trap last night. So, do I have some little things of interest to report that happened to me since the last episode? I do have a few small things that kind of tie into other recent episodes that I've done. So recently, for example, I was rereading Cryptozoology Anthology, which is a book I recommend frequently. Um, geez, I can't remember the author. Off the top of my head, one of the authors is named Coleman, though not a relation to uh, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman. Mm, though I think he wrote the intro. It's a collection of men's magazines, mostly from the 50s, 60s and 70s, and kind of showing how 
um, a lot of ideas of in cryptozoology, especially Bigfoot, were kept alive um, during the 50s and 60s, especially through these magazines. And that it's kind of a bit of a lost resource that, you know, because they weren't considered high culture, they were not um, remembered or recorded very often. So it's, it's a fun it's a fun read, but I was just flipping through it uh, last weekend and I came across a story called McDonald's Nightmare Safari, supposedly written by somebody named Jim McDonald. And that's, he's obviously a fake person. He's pretending that he's the person who this adventure happened to. And the reason I'm calling this out is it's a cryptid story about a guy having an adventure in the Mato Grosso in South America and coming across a giant albino lizard. And this book is clearly influenced by Exploration Fawcett. Uh, now, I recognize this straight away because he mentions the Morsegos people, who are Fawcett's supposed underground dwelling um, group of people he finds living in South America, who he who are pretty much not mentioned anywhere else. You go searching for this, you will inevitably find that mostly the links lead back to Exploration Fawcett. So I was tipped off to this writer had developed his concept of the Mato Grosso as being a strange place, potentially with dinosaurs or these Morsegos people. And indeed, a couple of pages in, he mentions Fawcett by name, and it's very clear that he's been influenced by this. So just this story, by the way, is from 1959. So interesting to see, you know, the kind of Fawcett's influence making its way through the pulp magazines in the middle of the century, after a few years after the publication of Exploration Fawcett itself. Also, I'm going to recommend a YouTube video called The Allure of Vintage Dinosaur Artwork. This is by a creator named Hoops and Dino Man. That's the whole name. And uh, it's a short video. It's 10 minutes, but it's just a really lovely evocation of, of, of classic dinosaur paleo art. And, and the creator talks about how even though this stuff is no longer accurate, there's there's something to be appreciated in it. And he includes a lot of classic dinosaur animations and clips from old documentaries and classic paleo so if you're a fan of that sort of thing like I am you might find this enjoyable anyway that's it for this whole episode I'm Kean. as always you can say hello over on Twitter where I'm at Strange Ireland or Instagram where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude and you can support the show as always at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic and until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that Satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.